0: Hi, humans. Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren.
1: And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking.
0: We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love stepping away from our evangelical church background all the while leaning into god and moving forward in our faith
1: we'd love to hear your story you can find us on instagram at deconstruct.pod now onto the episode
0: Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Joe Lumen. She was born and raised in Columbia and is a pastor with a master's degree in ministry and theology. She speaks and teaches about decolonizing church, theology, spirituality, and faith, as well as the importance of dismantling white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism, both individually and collectively. Joe, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be
0: here. Awesome. We're so excited to have you. Uh, Before we dive in, can you just give us a little bit of your background? Yes.
2: Um, As you said, I was born and raised in Colombia. Colombia is still a very Catholic country, and though my family had a lot of Catholic beliefs and roots, They were more agnostic than anything until my father became a Christian by meeting some Americans. Mm. And then um, my sister and I ended up becoming Christians as well. And then we took that to heart. Um, We became very intense Christians. And I moved after I finished college, I moved to the States to become uh, to, to get my master's degree and to work at an intern, like do an internship here in the States and learn. From what I believed were the best Christians in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I ended up meeting my husband and getting married and never leaving. And getting involved in a church plant, uh, working at that church plant for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I ended up just never leaving. So uh, through all of that process, I started deconstructing and decolonizing my faith. uh, And I could have just tossed it all, uh, which I thought about often. Yeah. But instead, um, I decided to keep it. I wanted to keep it. Not only because it has served me in my growth and in my development as a human being, but also because I believe that it is the responsibility of those of us who are Christians to call out the toxicity inside of Christianity and of Christianity and how it's harming people. Yeah. So I stayed for both those reasons.
1: Mm.
0: I love that. That's same for us, honestly.
1: yeah, did you feel like the colonization of your faith began when you were still in Colombia, or was it when you came to the states and started trying to learn um, Christianity from people that are here?
2: Oh no, it began in Colombia. Um, you know even even though we weren't really practicing Catholics, then the narratives of Catholicism of Christianity of the Bible um, are are deep in all of us, yeah. um, in all of Latin American countries. Really, um, you know, you walk down the streets and you see churches. You uh, the, the schools, even when they are secular schools, um, they will have celebrations that are Christian celebrations. They, will, I mean, it's so ingrained into our culture and mm. into our society that no, the colonization of of my of my faith yeah. uh, began really, you know, four hundred years ago. Uh, yeah. It, it, it began when the colonizers came and stripped us of our culture and of our belief systems and told us what to believe. Yeah. And it just became normalized and it became who we are, except we, we
0: aren't. Right. Mm. Right. Wow. Is there, is, was there a thing like a specific thing in your life that uh, was kind of a turning point for you that made you so passionate about the work of decolonization? Yes.
2: Uh, well, several things really. Um, I had a lot of questions. So the more I studied the Bible, because I became, so I have this personality trait, um, which is also from trauma, but where I, if I am, if I am going to do something, I'm, I am like do it. Mm-hmm. I'm an all in or not at all kind of person. I relate. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I was like, I'm going to be a Christian. Great. Then I'm going to be a Christian. Mm. So I started reading the Bible, got super intense about it. Like church, church all the time, super involved. And, uh, but I had a lot of questions and things that just didn't pan out. Um, and when you, like when you're a Christian as a teenager, um, all those questions, people just brush them aside. Like, oh, you're just young and immature and you just don't get it. Right. Uh, I remember actually being in class at one point, and this was before I became a pastor before all of it. And I, I remember asking one of the pastors who was a teacher too. I said, I don't understand. I was, I was very young. I said, I don't understand why jewish people don't go to heaven i just don't that doesn't make sense to me Mm -hmm. they they serve the same god they love the same god i don't understand and the pastor gave me the answer of like you you'll understand in due time god's ways are bigger than our ways he knows better and his answer wasn't satisfying to me so i kept asking i kept being like yeah but that still doesn't make sense uh and he was like well we don't know who's going to be in heaven but yeah if you are if you're a jew you don't go to heaven and i'm like but that doesn't make sense
1: right <laughs> this, right
2: this guy gets up he was a he He happened to be an american he just got up he was in the front of the room and i was in the back he looked at me and goes dude just read romans and shut up <gasps> and i did I, I i mean he made me feel really small and i i did i shut up because he was a son of pastors of you know generations and generations of pastors and i just felt like i was just this newbie coming into Hmm. christianity that just didn't get it and so i did i shut up the pastor the the teacher slash pastor um told him that's not you know he was like that's not right but yeah romans does have the answer i mean guys i've read romans a million times (laughs) It does not have the answer um but you know even even from the get-go i had a lot of questions uh but i was because i was young and because i didn't have the tools I just quieted those questions and played gymnastics, you know, mental gymnastics in my head. I just don't get it. I'm just too young. I'm, I'm, pre- I'm perhaps too too proud. Um, whatever I needed to do to yeah. play gymnastics. Right. And, then, and then I became a mom. And that changed everything because I couldn't play gymnastics anymore. I right. had a responsibility to give my daughter an answer. Yes, I, I just I had to. And then one of the biggest questions I had is what if my daughter's gay?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What am I gonna do?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and and these, I couldn't play the mental gymnastic of I'll raise her right and she won't be gay. That was bullshit.
0: And you're right, right.
2: You know, it it it's not. It doesn't work that way. Right. I knew yeah. enough gay people to know it just doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah.
2: And so, um, and I didn't like the parenting of Christianity, the the authoritarian, discipline ridden. You know. And then I I started learning Hebrew because, as I said, I'm all in or not in at all. Yeah. Um. And in learning Hebrew, I discovered that the word obey is not, it doesn't, it's not in the Bible. Mm. Uh, and I thought that's interesting because I was trying to learn how to raise my daughter mm-hmm. in the most, in the best possible way, how mm-hmm. to be the best possible mom I could be. And the word obey wasn't there. The word is here. Mm. And I thought, huh, interesting. Because they keep telling us to obey. They keep telling me to obey this God. But all he all he. You know, and I like to put asterisks around the word right, he. Right, right. All, all he keeps asking is that I listen. But Christianity keeps telling me to stop listening. Right. You know, to not, to not listen to myself, to deny myself, to quiet myself, to not trust my heart, to not trust my intuition.
0: Even though we're taught that, you know, for Christians, we have God within us. And so if we can't listen right. to God within us, then who are we listening right. to?
2: And then no, nothing made sense. So things just started crumbling uh, when I had my daughter. And then I started, my eyes started being open to the abuse that I was experiencing inside of the church. Wow. Um, and I mean, things crumbled quickly for deconstructing that is. Um, and I started getting involved with people that were doing, you know, work that was like, if you're a Christian, you're changing the community that you are in. Um and these were still evangelicals, and then we got involved with home churches and people that were committed to your church should transform your neighborhood, your immediate neighborhood mm-hmm. first. Yeah, and we loved it, except they were all non-affirming and they all were complementarian, believed that women could had a place but couldn't lead. Mm. Uh, and so, in all of these meetings, it was a whole bunch of pastors. By by this time, I was ordained now, and it was all these pastors, and we would have these meetings. It was in San Francisco. And my husband and I would fly there and have these meetings, and it was men, all men, and me. And mm-hmm. it was uncomfortable. Like my husband started feeling it even. And he said, I I can almost feel how oppressed you must feel in this in these spaces.
0: And is said, your,
2: yeah. is your like, husband white? He's white. He's okay. super white. Also six yeah. So so, so is them. my husband. White and six <laughs> Yeah. You can't miss them. Yeah. Uh and he's like, I can I can feel it without even having a hint of what you must feel mm-hmm. and I can't even feel it. Wow. Um, so we started just decolonizing then.
0: yeah.
2: And and we started a home church that now looks completely different than the intent that we had from the get-go. Uh, and we started deciding we're going to decolonize this thing and see what I, we call it, putting the feet, the feet of our faith to the fire,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: whatever burns, burns. And in that process, we were willing to burn all of Christianity and our marriage and Whatever needed to burn was going to burn, but we were going to be faithful to ourselves. Yeah. And we were going to be honest and true. So it was a little bit of a lot of things, you know? Yeah. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, thank you for sharing. It's I really do relate to a lot of that. Um, so to give you a little bit of my background, um, do you have you met or spoken with Caitlin B. Curtis? Yeah.
2: Uh, I've not met her, but I've read her books and I've kind of interacted with her online.
0: Okay she and I have similar stories, um, as well. So my mother is white, but my dad is native American and Mexican. Um, and so my, his whole growing up, he's, you know, he's a Brown man who was raised by his, you know, solely by his mother, um, who spoke Spanish. And, um, you know, at that time, of course that was, she, she named him Jeff. <laughs> she, she, uh, named her other kids, Nick and Jackie. And, um, Definitely, her her trauma was passed on in the sense of trying to assimilate them and make them as white right. passing as possible, so that they weren't hurt and they were given the best opportunities. Um, mm. And I I do believe a lot of that trauma was passed down. Although I'm really only now discovering a lot of um, of that of that trauma. Um, although I've been. I've always been aware of my heritage, specifically my Native American heritage, um, because I still have family that live on the reservation in Canada. Um, So we I've learned about that a lot of my life. We used to go to powwows growing up. Um, My dad and I even would do I don't even know what you would call them, like, lesson like things we would go to I know in my school in my public school when I was um, actually in kindergarten he would speak about native culture and I would dance I would fancy dance um, and so it's always been a part of my life but there's just been so much of um, assimilation in my f- like my family history my grandfather was he was beaten in the name of Christ sent to boarding school and this is just my grandfather this isn't like this isn't like great great greats. Like this is my right. dad's dad. Um, you know, he he used to say he just passed a couple of years ago, but he used to say those methodists have a method all right and um mm-hmm. he used to you know, a lot of the our family are are Christian. A lot of my my mom's side. My mom is she's Christian, she's white, she's more conservative and Um, they would do a lot of almost like evangelizing to my grandfather. Um, and I remember him saying, even as a kid, I remember him saying, I'm not afraid of hell. I've already been there. Um, and anyway, there's just a lot of little things that happened. I heard growing up that made me, that stuck with me. Um, also being a very spiritual person, I was, um, naturally inclined to the to my spirituality versus religion. And, you know, when I hit puberty, that's when purity culture really began. And, um, I think that a lot of that kind of shut down my natural instinctual ties to my spirituality, even ancestors. So, um, I say all that because I I just wanted to give you a little bit of my background and, you know, where, where I'm coming from. And I've had to Oh, and I relate to whenever you're talking about when you go hard, you like go hard. You're like, I'm all in or I'm not. Yeah. And um, Adam and I were actually in the Christian music industry for um, most all of our lives and only recently have been out of it um, around the same time as when we started deconstructing. Um, obviously deconstructing and decolonizing because I believe they're really one and the same. They should be one in the same at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think one of my first big questions, my big um, turning points was we don't have children, but um, I thought I thought about children and thinking about all the thoughts I had as a kid and I never got answers to. And what would I tell my kids and what what where would I point them? And yeah, what if I had a kid that was gay? What is what does that mean? And I knew I knew that at the time I knew that if my kid was gay, I would 100 percent grab that Mm -hmm. pride flag and wave it around like I knew that I would I would do that, and I was like, "Well, then, why aren't I like that? Like, why? What? Yeah, why? Why aren't we waving the flag now? Then, right? Exactly. And so, I and to me, I mean, one of my biggest uh, drivers for change and just anything I do is I, I can't stand hypocrisy. So I was like, "If that's how I would be, if then I, why am I waiting? What? What am I waiting for? And of course, everything came tumbling down in the best way, but that's kind of what started the deconstruction yeah. for, for us.
2: Yeah. I can relate to many of the things you were saying. My, um, but interestingly, I don't know if this is true for you too, but my, so my grandpa is an indigenous man mm. uh, of Colombia, yeah. uh, which is so complicated because we don't get to call ourselves indigenous. Um, Why is that? Because, well, a lot of it was taken away from us, right? So he grew up in a very, very small town of indigenous people in Colombia. And when he was seven years old, he was sent down to Bogota, the capital city, to work. And he was raised by people in Bogota. And because of colonization and because of um, white supremacy, really, we were all um, kind of indoctrinated into distancing ourselves from mm-hmm. our indigenous roots. Yeah. right. So we acted European yeah. and we behaved like Europeans mm-hmm. and we would claim our European ancestors that, by the way, raped the women, the indigenous women. And that's why they are our ancestors.
0: Right, um, right.
2: And so, and I remember my grandpa, my, my grandpa worked really, really hard. He was very poor growing up and he didn't, he had a lot of poverty trauma. So he decided not to be poor anymore. And then he ended up making a lot of money. Um, so he, the more money he made, the more he wanted to distance himself from the indigenous, mm. from his indigenous roots. Mm. Right. And I remember him, I remember when I was probably eight or nine, he paid someone to do his ancestry like back then, you know, I'm talking 30 years ago. Right. And he paid and he looked it up all over because he wanted to find his Spanish roots mm. and they they couldn't find all that many. And he was disappointed. Mm. And I remember like, you know, I remember thinking I'm disappointed too.
0: Mm.
2: And we would we would visit his town. Um, it was 12 hours away from Bogota. We had to drive. And we would visit town. It was so much fun and we would all, it was just a really fun time. But yeah. at the same time, I, when my friends in school asked me what you did this weekend or what you did for, you know, um, spring break, I, I felt embarrassed that that's where we went. Yeah. Yeah. It was embarrassing. Mm. And so I don't get to, cl- I don't, I mean, I could, I could claim my indigenous, my indigenous roots. And I do, I speak about them often and I love them and I have. Done a lot of healing work into reclaiming them and becoming them. But the only reason I don't like to call myself an Indigenous person or woman is because I haven't, because I betrayed them and Mm. I still feel, um, I haven't felt the oppression of being an Indigenous person because I betrayed them and I decided to side with the colonizers. So one day I may just feel safe enough or comfortable enough reclaiming it fully as my identity. But right now I feel like I don't get to, you know, I haven't felt the oppression because I walked away from it.
0: Right. I mean, I understand that, but at and night, and I was just talking with Adam about this last night. This was part of like, you know, I was going back and forth with him, but at the same time, the oppression, some of the oppression that you feel is that, is, ass- that. is that assimilation? Is, Absolutely. Is that, yeah. is the fact that like you are, Feeling like for okay, I, I'll speak from my experience. I was saying how I, I haven't experienced the op- oppression and the the marginalization, especially as I'm half white and I'm white passing. So I experience white privilege most of my life. And so I feel like I, it's almost like I excuse, I, I find excuses or I find reasons to not. Um, Include myself in indigenous people almost. But the fact that I am removing myself, even though it is my blood, it is who I am. The fact that I'm removing myself is, it points to trauma. Uh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I work with um, Dr. Rosales Mesa,
0: mm.
2: who yeah. um, speaks a lot about this too. And she's, she actually claims her indigenous... Um roots fully i'm you know completely yeah. yeah, and i i've I've sat with all of that, and I just don't feel comfortable doing it yet, yeah, um, you know, and but I acknowledge them, and I acknowledge that not feeling safe claiming mm. them and feel it's all of that is my trauma that I'm still right. dealing with, like I acknowledge all of that, and I don't wanna rush it, yeah, because I don't want to this is what I don't wanna do, I don't wanna jump in um. To be like, I'm an indigenous person and I'm marginalized mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to steal that. It feels it feels cheap, and I don't want to do it. So yeah. I am, I'm, and I, I, but at the same time, but the reclaiming of my indigenous roots mm. is healing. Yeah, too. Yeah. So doing both and and taking my time and being i teaching my kids that we are indigenous people. So I've been learning a lot about the Muisca. We are Muiscas. Okay. Um or Chap. it depends. Mm-hmm. So I've been learning about them a lot for the last 3 years. I started learning their language too. Awesome. Um and I can I can say their the numbers now without having to look at a paper. But yeah. um but just reclaiming their stories, telling my children their stories too and the way how they believed about like what they believed about God, what they believed about themselves, yeah. um, how they had actual trans people in their stories mm-hmm. too. Yeah,
0: in our tribe, it was, they were often the leaders. Actually, people who were yeah, two, no, two in, like even in the you know we
2: have the the cre- everybody has a creation story. Most most cultures have, and in our creation story, there is trans people. Yeah, uh, which is beautiful to me, and just reclaiming all of that. So I want to come in after having. Wet myself enough. Yeah, does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, but of course, if anybody like, if if anybody wanted to claim they're in, like I'm an indigenous person, absolutely they get to, and that's that is part of resisting colonization. That is part of resisting and decolonizing too. Yeah. Um, I just my my own mind
0: doesn't let me quite yet.
2: Yeah. Um, so I keep I keep kind of healing that and working on that, and because it's important yeah. to do so.
0: Yeah. I completely understand. I totally get where you're coming from. So, for other people who are who are listening who maybe they don't have any ties to Indigenous culture or heritage, um what can you tell us why it is so important this work of decolonizing for for everyone? Why this is so important?
2: Yes. Um I actually believe that if if I, you know, in the reclaiming of my faith or in the repurposing of my faith, I guess I believe that decolonizing is actually what the gospel is all about, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I believe that decolonizing is the work of stripping your faith and stripping everything, stripping society, stripping your faith, stripping parenting of systems of oppression in the world. So whether you are indigenous or not, whether you are a marginalized community or not, um, we all are swimming in oppressive systems, they just happen to oppress us in different ways Mm -hmm. so a white cisgender heterosexual man um he he may be at the height of privilege in our hierarchy of acceptability but that doesn't mean that he's not being oppressed by the system Mm -hmm. he's just being oppressed in different ways but his psyche is being oppressed he's just the fact that he has to dehumanize others to be able to exist in this system Uh, And that doesn't happen consciously, but subconsciously, it's oppressive to them. Yeah. Uh, Because when you dehumanize another, you are just losing humanity yourself. Right. So the work of decolonizing is really not just the work of stripping what the colonizers did, but it's stripping any systems of oppression of our society so that we can show up, so that we can show up ourselves and our communities can show up in the world as healthy, whole communities that are not oppressive. But that instead are liberating yeah. um, and healing people. Yeah. My mother in law was walking through an art um, gallery, and she saw um, she saw a, a sculpture. And the sculpture is a woman who is inside of a cement block, and you, you can. She has her hand up with a chisel, and she's chiseling her way out of the cement. Mm. So you can see half of her body, but the rest of her body is inside of this cement block. That, to me, is is decolonizing. Yeah. And we all have to do it because we all get thrown in these cement blocks. Yeah. Um, and being whole and becoming healthy and becoming what I call becoming the image of God that we were created to be means chiseling our way out of these boxes of cement. So we all have to do it. That's It's a spiritual work, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really is. And a lot of... Um... A lot of people who have been a part of Christian churches too have they have been in that system of colonizing and not even realizing it. I have people who right. um, who may who may not be able to see the like examples or in ways that it is um, oppressive. So can you give us like an example for um, for us of how we ha- may have been colonized in the Christian church? Yeah. Um, Christianity
2: alone has been really framed as the superior faith. Um, so the way in which it was kind of given to people, um, from pretty much the get go, you know, I I think that maybe the first 50 years were a little different, but from, from that point on, and the moment that it started getting, um, married to the Roman empire, the moment that it started becoming a weapon of empire, um, it just became this narrative that Christianity is the faith, yeah. you know, it's the right faith, the true faith. And such a thing is not true. Such a thing is just a belief of white supremacy, believing mm. that my faith is the superior faith and not simply the faith that serves me.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so, so long as you believe that your way, your faith, your expression of your sexuality, your expression of your um, parenting, the way in which you live in the world is the right way, the proper way, and others ought to adopt it. Uh, you are participating in oppressing others yeah. because it's not, and and that is and, and part of white supremacy is homo- homogenizing. That's a hard word for me to say, but homogenizing mm. society, yeah, uh, making out of all of us, making clones out of all of us. Yeah, you know, we are going to find the right way, and then we are going to just go ahead and ask you all. To make yourselves fit into that mold, yeah. But as soon as you do that, what you do is you're stripping people of their agency and of their, of, of really the image of God that they are supposed to be. Right. I think that when when we talk about being image of God, um, I don't I don't mean that to say that we are like Jesus. I don't think that's what it meant, you know, because that's that's how they twisted it. We are all supposed to be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. Mm. Well, Jesus was a historical man. I I don't need to be like Jesus. I need to be like Joe. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Right. And
2: what that means is I need to embody 100% and fully everything that I was created to be. And to be able to do that, I need to get to know myself. Yeah. But because of systems of oppression, because of trauma, because of conditioning, societal conditionings, I most of us don't even know who we are. We just know our responses to trauma.
0: Right.
2: Most of us just know how we were told to show up in the world. Mm. Um, and the work, the spiritual work that I, that I want to do and that I invite people to do is we need to go back to ourselves. Yeah. She's our way out so that we can become the image of God we were created to be. Without right. the conditionings, without the constraints, without the this is how a family is supposed to look like, this is how a home is supposed to be led, this is how finances ought to work, this is how faith is supposed to be expressed. Yeah. So Christianity is perhaps one of the most um one of the most effective weapons in putting people in those boxes yeah. you know, or, of, of cement. Right. Because it tells you this is how you are supposed to be because this is the only way that this divine will accept you. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's just that the thought that you brought up a, a few seconds ago about um, how Christianity as we see it now, as, it, as in its colonized version, just kind of brings out a reactionary human being out of, out of somebody that is seeking to be whole and seeking to you know follow some sort of spirituality or some sort of religion and it's 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 interesting to me too because a lot of the people that we've talked to that the beginning of their deconstruction started with a reaction
0: with with mm-hmm. you and
1: Lauren both it started with the re- the reaction to well what if the oppressive systems that i'm in affect my my kid if they're gay right. or or something like that and and it's it's almost like it's it's self unraveling once you can get to a place of of it not being so uh, so reactive. And that's the moment that you can start yeah. saying, oh, look, this is how it affects other people, just because it affects me, and then I would react to that affecting me. I need to apply that to my faith and my religion outside of just my own existence.
2: Yeah, and that reactivity is, um, is a default of the system,
0: mm.
2: you know, because yeah. people that are traumatized, people that are... Um, inside of oppressive systems are often or always really in um in survival mode and in survival mode all you can do is react Mm. you don't get to exist you don't get to live you don't get to thrive you don't get to enjoy you don't get to just fully expand you don't get to just be because you're trying to survive so you can never put your guard down because if you put your guard down you get eaten yeah so the reactivity is a way and, and this is what happens so if we talk a little bit more about um what happens in your brain if we are always in survival mode what happens to our brain is that it's it shuts down so we have we have two nervous systems uh the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system the sympathetic nervous system is the system that gets kicked in when we are in survival mode when we are scared so when a bear is attacking us the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it shuts down our frontal lobe. Um, our amygdala starts sending all sorts of information and all sorts of, you know, um, chemicals really throughout our entire body. Our, our, We can't think properly. We can think analytically. Our stomach stops moving food properly. That's why a lot of people that have a lot of trauma have stomach issues. Mm. Um, and, and that's it. We can't think. We can think clearly. So how can a system of oppression thrive? Well, if it stops people from thinking clearly. And how can it stop them from thinking clearly? Keep them in survival mode. Mm. Keep them afraid. Keep them afraid that they'll lose belonging. Yeah. Because belonging is the, the most basic need of a human being to belong. Yeah. So if you can dangle belonging forever, you will keep them not thinking clearly. And if you keep them not thinking clearly, you keep them depending on you. Yeah, right. Free people are dangerous people. Yeah. you don't want free people so <laughs> you, if you keep them in survival mode they will never be free and right. that that's why joy is a part of their resistance that's why you know thriving yeah. stopping breathing like enjoying your life um, I, I say this to my husband and my kids often if I do this work that I do because it's not fun work really um, but it's important work and I like doing it I enjoy it but if I do this work that I do and don't enjoy them and don't enjoy my life, mm. the system won.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love that.
2: The system won. So there are days that are bad days, but I have to make constant reminders that I need to stop and enjoy my life. Yeah. Because part of resisting oppression is saying I get to expand and I get to enjoy and I get to live because you
0: don't own me anymore. I love that. That's so good. That's so good. <laughs> For those who you know, first kind of come to the realization that they are in this cement block, I think a, a, what a lot of people are coming up against is, okay, I realize I'm in this cement block. I realize I need to get myself out of here, but I don't know what to do. Do you have any tangible recommendations for people to chisel themselves out of that cement block?
2: Yes. Be patient. This is not, uh, you know, we, we, when we first realize we just want to get out of it so fast, and when you are chiseling um, fast, you hurt yourself.
0: Mm, yeah, you
2: know, you just end up hurting yourself pretty badly too, and hurting others yeah. because you don't want to just chisel your way out. You want to chisel everyone around you. Too. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um. But this is long, patient work. Yeah. And and we have to acknowledge that I perhaps I only have a handout right now, but a handout is better than nothing. Mm. And and it's gonna take time, and I have to be patient with myself and patient with others and commit. The commitment which is which I it's it has been um, hard for me and for others that I work with, the commitment is to never dehumanize myself or another
0: mm, right. because we
2: want to dehumanize the person that we were and just call them bad mm. or we want to dehumanize our abusers our colonizers and just call them bad and, and forget that they were cement blocks themselves yeah uh, they were harming because they were in the cement block they mm. they were being they were conditioned to harm. Yeah, the the fight is against the system, not against the people. Um, and if we keep fighting the people, then we become them. Right. You know, we're right. we're chiseling our way out while also pouring cement on the other end. Yeah. Right. So, just being patient, just sitting down and being patient, and questioning all the things, giving yourself permission to question all the things, but more importantly, to question who you who are you. Yeah. You know, it, I came to this realization maybe two years ago. I was sitting, I, I journal a lot. That's that's perhaps my most healing tool, journaling. Yeah. And I was journaling and I, I asked in my journaling, I asked myself, when was the first time I experienced anxiety? Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that the first time I, I bite my nails, I have stopped, um, and I do a good work right now with not biting them, but it's hard it's hard for me not to bite them. Yeah. The first time I started, I remember biting my nails, I was three years old. Mm. because I had my mom had this huge I'm the first granddaughter of a big family and they were throwing me a very big three third birthday
0: Mm -hmm.
2: very big everybody was invited and I was very excited about it so I decided to cut my own hair to look beautiful oh no I did a terrible job as (laughs) one as one would expect and my mom was so mad at me she was so so mad at me she didn't have the tools to handle that differently. So she was really angry with me and she screamed at me. And I remember thinking I ruined my birthday. I ruined everything. I ruined everything. Mm. I just ruined everything. And I started biting my nails and I didn't stop. Uh, I still bite them sometimes and I have to paint them and I have to be very conscious and aware of that. And I realized, my God, I have not met me without anxiety. Mm. I don't know who she is. Yeah. I don't know her. I don't know her. So since two years ago, my journey has included, I'm going to meet her. We're going to meet one another. Yeah. That me without anxiety, we're going to meet her. And that's going to take a lot of work. And I don't know when, when I'm going to meet her. But at least I'm aware that this person that I am today, with the less anxiety that I carry now, but it's still anxiety that I carry. This is not the true me. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm patient with myself in when I am. When I give myself into anxiety, I remember I'm not bad. I was given this. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just wasn't given the right tools to handle my anxiety. So now I became it.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: So people, we, we as people tend not to be, we want really quick change. It takes time and we have to be just patient with ourselves and compassionate with ourselves which then means we have to show compassion to others yeah. which compassion doesn't mean giving them a pass you know compassion right. also includes accountability
0: yeah
1: well compassion is also decolonizing the people that look like the colonizer absolutely like the and people and, that are oppressing you
2: yes calling them to account you yeah, know right absolutely
0: someone yeah, actually absolutely. messaged us Um, when they saw that you were going to be on the podcast, they were very excited. And, um, they asked us to ask you this question. Um, and that kind of relates. Um, she said, how can we compassionately deal with lived experiences of people that make them feel justified in their bigotry? Like, are we supposed to have grace for racists? What does it mean to love our neighbors who dehumanize our other neighbors?
2: Oh gosh, it's it's tough, right? Um, yeah. I think that I tend, to, what I like to do um, and what helps me a lot is what I was telling you guys about. The, the, my commitment to not dehumanize the other. It's it's so easy to dehumanize them. You know, they are just racist. I don't yeah. call anybody a racist. Mm. Um, their behavior is racist. They aren't. They they were indoctrinated into white supremacy, which makes their behavior racist. Mm. Because when I call them a racist, it's easy. I just wash my hands off of it. Mm. Well, you're, People are just racist. People are just racist. But instead, if I say, no, we live in a racist society which has created a lot of people that behave in a racist manner, mm. then I have to play a part in the helping them heal from it. Yeah. Because I have to change this society. Right. It is my job then to change the water we're swimming in. Mm. So, no, that doesn't mean I do it perfectly. Sometimes I'm like, ah, this asshole. Like, why? Right. right. Um, and I have to just go back and remind myself, this is the water they've been swimming in and and it is really hard for a shark to notice the water they are swimming in right it's very very hard and the bigger the the bigger the fish the harder it is yeah. to look so i have family members right now who absolutely despise the work that i do mm. they are absolutely convinced that i am leading my family to hell <laughs> um that my family are just victims of my wickedness and Jeez that I am doing the work of the devil. Literally, that's actually a quote. Um, And I could dehumanize them Mm. and I could just call them bad and evil and terrible. Or I could remember how we were indoctrinated into believing that what I do and what I speak about and condemning Christianity for them means that I am the devil. Yeah. Are they right? No. But I know where they got that.
0: Yeah.
2: I know where they got that belief. Yeah. So I I set the necessary boundaries that I need to set to to make sure that I am safe and that they don't affect my own well-being. Um and then in my mind because right now it's not safe for me to try to change them. I don't want to. I actually it's not safe for me to ever want to change anybody, but yeah. it's not safe for me to engage them perhaps is what I meant to say. Yeah. I don't right. feel safe engaging them. I'll just get ha- harmed and I'll be re-traumatized in that. Yeah. So I recognize that. I recognize that. And I compassionately let them go. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I, I hope and pray that they will deal with this because they won't be healthy if they don't. Yeah. But that means that these people don't get to see my kids. Right. And they don't get to see me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I lo- and that is love for them and for me. Right. because they won't like they won't like me either if right. I have to engage right, yeah, so I think that c- compassion sometimes looks like distance and boundaries mm-hmm. and compassion sometimes looks like i I commit to not dehumanizing you, but it doesn't mean I have to have you around,
1: yeah. yeah I think that I think that speaks to the logical fallacy of tolerating right. intolerance is, in and of itself isn't something that will move us forward no I, I think compassion the way that you're talking about it that compassion to help others heal of the system that they've grown up in and that they've been indoctrinated into is important and necessary work.
2: I, and, and you know what, it doesn't, I, I think that because we have these narratives of the heroes, um, you know, we were told Jesus was the hero. Mm. We are told all these people are the hero. Paul was a hero and Peter was a hero. and And this narrative of the hero is really white supremacy. Yeah. Um, This idea that there is the one man, you know, and all these pastors, you see them because of the trauma of the hero running to be the hero that brings revolution and change into the world. The hero doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, We are a community of people that work together to bring heaven to earth to all the people and each of us plays a part. And that's just that. That's it. I I don't need to be anybody's hero. But the moment that we want to become a hero, then I think that I have to change every person and save every person from the systems of oppression.
0: Mm.
2: And I I don't. I don't feel that burden because it's not mine to carry. We are a society. I play my part and my part will serve many, but it won't serve many too. And thankfully, there are many others like you guys and many other people in the world playing their part too. And you will serve some that I don't. And that's completely fine. Yeah. But this desire to be the hero will harm us, you know, especially with the ones we love.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something I've heard you speak on, and others as well, and I, I really, I would love to get your um, kind of description of this, um, and that is of the doctrine of discovery, because you know, I, I brought up my story, I brought up my heritage, in which I'm sure I deal with, you know, what we were saying, like the a level of trauma, generational trauma being assimilated and um yeah so i was just wondering if you could tell us about your perspective of how uh, assimilation relates to the doctrine of discovery
2: um yeah the the doctrine of, of of discovery is is this idea that um the colonizers really because they weren't old christians but most of them were a lot of them were um who arrived at lands that they had not been at before discovered the land. Um, And obviously we can now look back and be like, this is absolutely ridiculous. There were human beings there already. You cannot discover a place where humans are already living and thriving and have incredible, intricate, detailed societies. Yeah. Um, So the, the, The way in which this doctrine of discovery married Christianity is this notion that the land that they found, because they were Christians and they were the chosen people of God, the exclusive chosen people of God, the land that they found is the the land of milk and honey. Oh, um, yeah. The promised land. The promised land. Thank you. Yes. So this is the promised land for us. So the doctrine of discovery marries Christianity. Um, in this In this manner, this is the promised land, and we are the chosen people, therefore, this is our land
1: mm-hmm. mm. um,
2: and we can see now how that harms you can You can actually read some of the journals of the colonizers that speak of the land being of the Americas and some of different places in the world. This is the land of milk and honey, this is the land that God gave us. it is our job to take it over it is our job, and taking it over means going back to the story of joshua and uh, what happens in Joshua when they are taking over the promised land? The The command is, which the command is supposedly by God. I don't, I don't believe it was by God. It was by their trauma. Yeah. The command is get in and destroy everything.
0: Yeah.
2: Because you guys know the right way. Mm. Because this is your land. Yeah. So we can see how... People can say that Christianity is not the problem, but the problem is just the people, misusing using Christian values or whatever you want. Yeah. But, I mean, we're talking about continents, entire continents, defaced, abused, people murdered because of Christianity. Right. Because of the doctrine of discovery, because of this belief that they found it, they are the chosen people of God, therefore it's theirs, and it is their job to subdue it. Mm. Uh, because that's another part of the Bible, right? right. This is your land; you have to do it, right? So, um, that narrative we are we are not colonizing um, in the same ways that we were colonizing 400 years ago and 300 years ago. On, but that colonizing continues to happen. So we see missionaries that go places, and we see Christians that go everywhere, and we see Americans, and we see especially white people that go places and their belief is we are the chosen people of God. We are extraordinary, superior, and we know best. Mm. And it is our job to help you understand how these ought to happen and subdue the earth, subdue your land, subdue your culture. So the doctrine of discovery is something that happened, but it's also something that is
0: happening. Do you think that's part of why a lot of white people are having such a hard time with black lives matter and understanding systemic racism and their own white privilege.
2: I think that, and the fact that they are completely unaware of their subconscious biases.
0: Yeah. Like
2: absolutely unaware. If you, cause nobody admit, nobody, we all have this tendency of looking at ourselves in the mirror and think that we're the good guy. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: And because we have not been told and we have not been given the tools, right? Because we are in these trauma cycles of survival we have not been given the tools to look at ourselves honestly and be able to see both the colonizer and the colonized yeah. in every single aspect of our lives. Right. So white people feel attacked. So right. I, I don't know, have you guys heard of the backfire effect?
0: Yes, but, you, but I would like you to, <laughs> to describe it for, for our listeners.
2: Yeah. So ba- basically the backfire effect is what I was explaining earlier about your sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. When you feel attacked, um, your sympathetic system kicks in. And that happens when you are physic- like physical, like in physical danger. A bear is attacking me. But that also happens when you are feeling your beliefs that are deep held, that are part of your identity, attacked. Mm-hmm. So your brain shuts down and you are not able to think properly anymore. Instead, you want to double down on that belief because you want to protect it um, because you're feeling attacked. Yeah. So when I say white people are dangerous white people are saying wh- white people are hearing you're calling me dangerous this is a part of my identity um, and they just want to attack back and dig their heels no white people are good or when I say white supremacy is we have to uproot white supremacy and we, we you all are white supremacists I am a white supremacist then white people immediately
0: mm. close
2: their minds
0: yeah
2: uh, and, and even non-white people too right Because you don't want to be a white supremacist. Right. You don't want to be called that. You don't want to be called a racist. You don't want to be called a bigot. Right. But we all are because we all have implicit biases inside of us. The problem is so long as we cannot bypass the backfire effect and we cannot bypass our own biology that um, prevent us from being able to think clearly, we're not going to get through. And I, I think, I mean, we've all felt it. The moment that somebody says something and we feel our body shift, our mind change, and we know we're not listening anymore. We're just trying to defend ourselves,
0: right? Yeah.
2: And and at the moment that I I get there myself, or I see somebody else, because you can see it on other people too. Yeah. The moment I see them, I recognize this is not a productive exchange anymore. Yeah. Your 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 own biology, your own brain, is not letting you listen anymore. It's not it's not you. It's just your own brain is not allowing for you to listen anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you've, you've been doing this work now for, for a while and it's part of your lived experience and it's part of your literal work that you do. And just as a personal question, with all that's going on, current events and the uprise of the Black Lives Movement, George Floyd's murder, all of that, the protests, I'm curious if you've personally felt encouraged or discouraged by what you've seen on social media and in real life lately. Both. Yeah.
2: Um, I feel very encouraged to see more people being awakened to yeah. to um, racial biases, mm. specifically. Yeah. I also feel very discouraged that they are taking it lightly. Yeah. And that it's become cool now. Right to, right. to like black people, it's become cool to be against racial injustice, but people are not realizing that this is this is deep work. You know, right. you literally just grab the chisel,
1: right? But
2: you wanna claim. You know, I'm free. Right. And, um, and I've seen a lot of that. And it concerns me. When something becomes cool, it concerns me because they, it being cool and people wanting to just jump in and become part of it actually mm-hmm. harms the movement.
0: Well, it's, it, I feel like it's the similar danger of, you know, churches that say that they welcome all. Exactly. You know, but they're mm-hmm. not actually affirming, and it's kind of like a bait and switch, where it's
1: like where they pull you into a situation where you'll listen to them so that they can they can fix try you, to, you're right? Basically, um, yes,
0: and that just, it doesn't really align with who they are and their core beliefs. It's instead it's just a blanket statement that gets more people in the club. Exactly, and
2: and that's not what we need. I and mean, I have been concerned actually to see a lot of people of color that are clapping for white people mm-hmm. that are awakening. Yeah. Um cuz i that all that signals to me is how deep white supremacy is
0: inside of us. I yeah, i completely agree. Cuz i'm like
2: why are we why are we clapping for these people? Uh, you know, in the meantime, black women, indigenous women, black men, indigenous men, non-binary people have been screaming for years and you mock them. Right. But white person come jumps in today and we're clapping them. Yep. Um, that just shows how your own biases are at play here, yeah, and you have a more you're more susceptible to believing a white person and to clapping for a white person and to s- celebrating a white person than you would anybody else yeah, I told my husband i'm 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 currently working on a book proposal, and I told my husband i can it's really hard for a woman of color to get a, a book deal it's yeah. very, very hard uh and I was looking at the progressive Christianity deconstructing world Mm -hmm. and how many books are written by women of color not Mm -hmm. a lot yeah um not a lot a lot of white people a lot of white women a lot of white men um and so the conversation is incomplete and i was telling you i can almost guarantee you that a book on decolonizing christianity because there is like three (laughs) right now right and i said i and, and the book i'm writing of course is about decolonizing christianity and what that means for me and what that looks like for me right And I said, but I can guarantee you there is going to be white people writing about it and they are going to get a bigger deal. I I will get my book out, but they will get a bigger deal and more financial benefits and more people buying it than me. Just because our biases are so deeply ingrained that when a white man says the same thing I've been screaming, it just, people are like, oh my gosh, that makes sense.
0: Yep. Yep. I totally, I totally get you. This like you're, you're preaching fire. I love that. I love it.
2: (laughs) it's deeply frustrating, and I also understand it. That's why it is the job of white men to say, Can you please listen to them? Because that's who I learned from.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That's what I keep telling Adam, because he's always, he's, he leans more towards like, I want to step back. I don't want to be like a loud voice. But I'm like, But you already have been given the mic. You were born with a microphone in your hand. Use it for good. Point right. it to other people. Point it to yeah. people of color. Point it to yeah. women. Point it to mm-hmm. non binary people. Point it to, you know, it's just, Anyway, I I completely agree with you and I and I yeah. love that you touched it's, on that.
2: And it's so simple really. Nobody's saying don't speak. What we're saying is can you point us to where you learned that because you weren't enlightened. Right. Yep. You didn't wake up one day and were like, "Oh my gosh, I got it. I'm just so smart like that."
1: <laughs> yeah. No,
2: there was there was probably a woman non-binary person, somebody that sat down and took a lot of time explaining this to you. There was a lot yeah. of emotional labor. There was a lot of actual labor yep. for you to be able to get to these conclusions. Are you going to give honor to to the people that that actually enlightened you? Right. And that's, I read a lot of books, a lot, uh, of course, I read a lot of books. I love books. And when I don't see that in the book, mm. I it's concern, I, concerning to me.
0: You're and like, there, wh- who are you plagiarizing right now? <laughs>
2: Yeah, because let's not pretend you were just enlightened. You just, oh my gosh, you got to these conclusions one day. You woke up and you were like, in my dreams, God told me. Right. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's, not, that's not true. So I I get concerned. And there are big names, big names and books that I've read recently that I'm like, you mentioned like
0: nobody. Right. right.
2: Nobody. This, this all makes it seem and sound like you are just brilliant on right. your own. Yep, it, and that doesn't exist. Like I said, we're no heroes, right? Right. Um. So yeah, I, I, I look for because white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism—it's so sneaky. So it's hard sometimes to see it in those little crevices, in those little things. Sometimes yeah. I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm that annoying person that is like. Mm but that's white supremacy too. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) I love it. I Uh, love that you're like that though. Yeah,
2: because people want to be like, oh my gosh, but it's so good. Look at them talking about this. and I'm like, yeah, but the way in which they are doing it is white supremacy in itself.
0: Yeah, which is why I love you. (laughs) You're amazing. Um, I don't make a lot of friends though, you guys. Yeah, Yeah, I get it. I definitely understand that. Um, Somebody else asked um, this kind of how we'll just like sum this up although I have so many other things I want to talk about so I might just like call you up again and we're just going to keep <laughs> going because this is this is good work um, but somebody else uh, messaged us and they were asking for um, your advice on personal and professional academic advice that you give for people that want to follow in your footsteps
2: well I don't think anybody should follow him in my footsteps basically Mm. um like like i said we all have a part to play and i'm playing mine and i i think we all have to play ours yeah now that doesn't mean that i can't like what i've done cannot help somebody else into their own path you know right so um so some of the work that i do is i i read a lot yep um, I made a commitment about two years ago to have about 80% of the voices that speaking to me are women and/or non-binary people, yeah, and people of color, uh, both of yep. those, yeah. Um, and the reason I and people are like, Well, you're not going to hear from white people now and white men, and isn't that <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, isn't that going to affect your ability to see clearly? I'm like, No, because I have 38 years or 37 years. Of, of whiteness, white mm-hmm. men voices yeah. inside of me. Right. So um, I'm just trying to balance it out at this point.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: So, um, so I do that. I, I make a commitment to listen to the voices that I have not listened to. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you have to go to school. I don't think, you know, I, ha- I got my master's. I actually applied for my doctorate. Um, and in the applying for my doctorate, I was also decolonizing. And when I decided to go to get my doctorate and i applied i also was decolonizing and i was uncomfortable with the with academia and how much whiteness and white supremacy runs through academia Mm. um and i knew it was going to be traumatizing for me uh the this the two schools that i applied for both had a majority of white men teaching um they had very very few women and even less women of color and I was like, I don't. why do I want to do this? Like, I can just right. pick up books and read a lot. Yep. Uh, because the only thing that this degree would serve me for is so somebody else would admit that I am indeed someone that can speak about these things. And if, and they won't,
0: you know? Yeah. yeah.
2: They just won't. So, so I decided, like, you don't have to go to school. And I don't think anybody has to go to school. You do have to get educated, though. Right. And you have yeah. to educate yourself. Right. So I think... Just as you educate yourself, as you do the work of chiseling your way out of this box, you find what is the lane that I am supposed to run in.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, because you're not supposed to run in my lane. You're supposed to run in your own. Yeah. And the only way to figure out what that lane is, is to listen and work alongside. And, and you know, maybe in the lane that I'm supposed to work in, we're supposed to link arms and work together for, a, for some time or not, um, or forever, whatever. But... Most definitely, my lane is my lane, and your lane is your lane. And I don't want to step into anybody's lane and say this is yours.
0: Yeah, right.
2: So, so we just educate ourselves. Depending on our our the things that hurt, the things that pain us, the things that just touch us. Um, I I learned about leprosy, guys. I I take a lot of tangents, but they all make sense. I promise. You. <laughs> no, you're you're uh, really great. I learned about leprosy a few years ago, and how what leprosy does is that each essentially it kills your nerve endings and you cannot feel anymore Mm. um so that's why people end up losing their arms or losing you know their fingers or losing their legs whatever because they cannot feel when they have gangrene or when they cut themselves Mm. or whatever yeah which made me think about spiritual leprosy and and what toxic christianity invites you to is to have spiritual leprosy to not feel anymore to not feel for the other and not feel for the things that you're supposed to feel for, to not let your emotions lead you. Mm. Um, So emotional leprosy or spiritual leprosy will keep you from being able to find your lane because your emotions, your feelings, they are your, they are the way to your path. That's how you learn where you're supposed to go. That's how you know, as you listen to your intuition and to yourself and to your body.
0: Yeah.
2: So I tell people, um, The the fight is against leprosy, against not feeling and in in the sitting down and being like, what's going on within? Mm. What do I have to listen to? Is this my trauma speaking or is this me, truly Mm. me deep inside? Yeah. Uh, And I, you know, between educating yourself and sitting down to question what's going on within, you'll find your path.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Also, you have amazing, beautiful resources on your Instagram. Oh yes. And I yeah, I love those. So Joe has uh resources for deconstruction, decolonization, work, um, how to be an ally. She has all the resources. Um and they are I'll I'll point to your Instagram. Is that is that probably the best way for people to find you is on your Instagram.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I started my YouTube channel and then I stopped because it's a lot of work. So I haven't posted. <laughs> I just in don't it. have the time right now. I stopped after I had my baby, who yeah. was not a planned baby. But um, <laughs> So, yeah, you won't find new videos, okay. like, over a year, I think. But there are some videos on YouTube. But Instagram is probably where you can find most of the things that I write.
0: Okay, great. Perfect. Well, I will definitely include that in the link or in the bio down below. Um, and, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Joe, for being on today's episode. Absolutely. It was an <laughs> honor to speak with you.
2: Thank you so much. It was really fun to talk to you guys and I
0: hope it's not the last time we get
2: to talk to each other. For the podcast or not.
0: Yes, (laughs) I agree. I hope not either. Well, thanks guys for listening. Until next time. Bye. Bye. If you liked this episode, please share, rate, and review on whatever platform you're listening.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Bye.